Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me as always, ladies and gentlemen, the next star of ABC's The Bachelor, he is the captain. There will be no rose for you. No rose for you, I say. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for wearing your ball gowns and coming in with your fake teeth and all that stuff. And your hair did. And your hair all did. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Today we are drinking Off the Leash, shamefully good Texas red ale by the good, good people at Noble Ray Brewing Company in Dallas, Texas. Beautiful people in Texas. Garage grade four out of five bottle caps. This shamefully good Texas red ale is brewed with no restraint, malty, robust, Just and like the, the perfect, captain. the perfect balance of hop flavor and aroma. The captain has no restraint. You know who else is shamefully good? Our good friends in the garage. First up, we have Vanessa in Greensville, Tennessee. Like your gym. Next, we have Kinsey in Tucson, Arizona. Kinsey, like your gym. Next, we have Lisa in the Great Lakes State, and we have Kristen in Detroit, Michigan. Detroit, I like your gym. Speaking of Texas, Captain, we have Joshua and Aaron in Lubbock, Texas, and we also have Abby down in Dallas, Texas. And we don't have many rules and parts of known, but if you do litter, you will be stoned. You will be lynched. Your pubes will be set on fire. No restraint, Captain. And while we're in Parts Unknown, let's make sure we thank Diana, Megan, Kelly B, Natalie, Martha, Peter, Beth, Susan, and Yowzer, the giant orange cat, mm. and Dwayne. But I don't know if that's the same person as the giant orange cat. Yowza. Put that cat on a leash. And if you'd like to donate to the beer fund, you can do so at truecrimegarage.com and click on the donate button. Also, we got t-shirts, so if you haven't bought one of those t-shirts, you need to go do so now because they're running out. And if you would like to follow us on social media, Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, Untapped, all that stuff, you can do so at True Crime Garage. That's enough of the business. Everybody gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime.
This is True Crime Garage. And this is the case of a dark past. What if you thought you knew someone's secrets? What if you had learned about someone's past? A very dark past. And you suspected that person of murder. Multiple murders. But this person, this evil, dangerous person, is not in prison. He is not tucked away behind bars. Society is not safe from this killer. And you and I are not safe because this monster is still walking the streets. Maybe he's living in your neighborhood where you work and where your kids go to school. You know his secrets. What would you do? Would you act on what you know? What if you could not just turn him in? What if the police knew what you knew, but they had no proof? Would you confront the man? Would you confront a killer? How close would you get? We're talking with Gina Frenzel, a licensed private investigator in the state of Texas. Gina, can you take us through your typical work week? Oh, a typical work week is is a lot of a lot of research work. Everything starts at the desk and on the phone and vetting everything that we have to do. But the most common cases that that we work are what we call domestic cases, you know, cheating spouses, child custody, those types of things. That's kind of our cash flow to keep the the business going. And then I am one of the few that branch out and try to volunteer for missing persons, families that can't afford cases uh, to be, you know, to hire a PI to work on cases especially missing persons. I like the cold cases the best. I like the historical aspect of it. But commonly, I mean, those, those are few and far between. If, if families have the money, they'll come to us, you know, ask for the services. But most families don't have a lot of money. And that's part of the reason, unfortunately, why they end up being cold cases. So I try to choose a case or two during the year to work on and uh, reach out to a family Usually it's a Texas case because I can get a lot of the the work done, you know, locally. But sometimes, like right now, I'm working on a missing person case out of Washington State for a family. The case that we're going to be talking about, it goes back a ways. I believe it starts in 1962. How did you get involved in this? This was actually one that kind of found me. I was on my way to a private investigation convention up in Dallas. And I was traveling with a colleague of mine, and I decided to download some stuff on my Kindle to read, you know, because you have downtime, and, and during during the conference, there's downtime and all, so, and I'm a big reader. So 
I'm looking. I kind of blame the whole thing on Amazon. I real, I'll be honest with you because I'm looking at my suggested reading list now. God forbid somebody, uh, you know, pick up my Kindle and look at my reading list. They would probably need therapy when they're done. I read all true crime stories. The only uh, fictional author that I read is John Grisham. The rest of them are all true crime, and and there's no filter on anything. I'm pretty uh, morbid when it comes to my reading list. So Amazon, of course, clues in on that, and at the very bottom there was this 99-cent book and it was called gone and i was like oh 99 cents i'm cheap too so yeah i'll take the 99 cent book you know and it's a short read i think it's like 30 pages or something this is the book gone by jerry mitchell and it's about felix vale who is a suspected serial killer so while i was gone on this convention i read and it was just fascinating and i'm one of these people that if something is really interesting to me I don't just read the book and be like, oh, that was cool, and lay the book down. I get online, and I start researching, and I want to know the ups and downs and lefts and rights of every little detail about it, you know. And this guy, I don't know what it was. There was something with Annette, and, and which was one of the missing women, that really just connected with me. And so I just started researching it. Well, I, I'm still in Dallas, and I Google his name, and it pops up that he is living in Canyon Lake. Well, that's like an hour and a half from where I live. So on my way home, I just kind of cruised through the area. And so, you know, being a private investigator, you get the privilege of, you know, databases, proprietary databases. And so I just ran his name through there and figured out where he lived and drove by. And, and of course, he was outside at the time. It was kind of funny. And he yelled at me for driving by. That was an interesting little interaction and then I get home and about a week later I thought man this is this guy is still out there obviously there's a question of his guilt or innocence I wonder if Jerry Mitchell would need any help because Jerry's in Mississippi so I just sent him an email and I offered my services I just said hey this is me this is what I do I'm literally in the guy's backyard. Um, if you need any, you know, research work done or anything like that, I'd be happy to help because I do want to help the families get closure. And there was a fire on the property that he was living on. It had nothing to do with Felix at all. Okay, so on the property where Felix Vale, the suspected serial killer, lives, there had been a fire previously that had caused some damage. And Jerry was interested in the information about the fire. And that's how I got involved. And then I had zero intention of talking to Felix at all. You know, I treated that just like I would any other case. And your your suspect or your prime target, you usually either never talk to them or they're the very last person in the chain of investigation that you talk to. Um, like at the very end of your investigation, that's when you, you know, kind of blow your wad, so to speak. And because once you talk to them, it's over. Everybody knows that you're talking to everybody else, and you know the whole thing. And and if you talk to that person, sometimes it spooks them and they take off. So you're in the neighborhood. You're talking with fire investigators. You're almost pretending to be investigating this fire, but you have no intention of speaking with the owner of the property, Felix Vale. I had zero intention of talking to Felix. 
But being the smart ass that I am, I was talking to Jerry on the phone and I said, Well, I'm just coming up, you know, empty. I'm not really getting anywhere with this fire thing. And I said, I'm just down the road from where Felix lives. I'm just going to go knock on his door. And I laughed. I literally laughed. And Jerry comes back and said, oh, don't worry about that. He won't He won't talk to you. He doesn't talk to anybody. He doesn't even open the gate. He wouldn't even talk to law enforcement. I tried. Nobody. He will not talk to anybody. Of course, because he's hiding from a murder investigation. In my mind, I'm like, oh, really? You want to bet? <laughs> so... I took it as a personal challenge and just drove over there, and his gate was open. I think if his gate wasn't open, I probably would have never got never got with him, you know, as far as visiting or anything like that. But his gate happened to be unlocked. He probably regrets that. But I just walked in and knocked on his door, and then it went on from there. You read a story telling you that this guy is probably a multiple murderer. You suspect him of killing at least three people. Now you decide to go to his property. You're on the property inside the gate, and you're just going to knock on the door. What is the interaction like with with the serial killer, with, with the suspected serial killer? I was shaking like a leaf, and I'll tell you, you do that not just because it was Felix, but because it's the prime target. You know, it's the suspect in the case, and... Anybody, no matter how long you've been investigating or if you've never been in that situation before, you're going to be nervous. And it's it's a good thing because it keeps you alert. Driving over there, I'm thinking to myself, what am I going to say to this guy to get him to talk to me? I mean, obviously, if I just walk up and say, hey, I read a book and read that you killed three women possibly, obviously he's not going to talk to me. So I needed a story. I needed a cover story. So I used the fire on the property and said that I was investigating the fire. And technically it wasn't a total lie, but, you know, it it morphed from there. And I had my camera with me because I was using it for another uh, case that I was working. So I just got out with my camera bag and told him, I said, hey, the insurance company is investigating this fire. Even though it happened a few years ago, they've reopened the investigation. They want me to come out and take pictures because there's this big concrete slab where this house burned down, and there's still scorch marks on the slab. So, and then a burned tree, you know, and just kind of weird stuff. So I said they wanted me to just kind of photograph everything. So it was about a 20-minute interaction, and it was rainy and cold, and and he was kind of put off in the beginning. You know, he didn't want to mess with it, and rightfully so. I mean, if somebody came to my house, I would probably wouldn't want to mess with it either, you know. But he eventually, about five or ten minutes into the conversation, kind of let down his guard a little bit, and we're walking around, and I'm snapping all these random, useless photos. He said something during that first 20 minutes that he he spoke about a girlfriend, not one of the three women, but a girlfriend that actually I met later on that was, I guess they had a falling out, obviously, and and he had said something along the lines of a personal response. Nothing significant, but when I left there, I thought to myself that he he let down his guard enough to allow me to come back for a second time to see if I can get him to really talk to me. And because the the whole first part of the conversation, he was just like, you know, the attitude of take your pictures and get off my property. 
But as soon as we started getting chatty and he kind of let his guard down, I knew I could go back at least one more time. During this first interaction with Felix, were you recording your conversations? Yeah, I was recording the first one. Um, I was wearing the sundress because it was late March, early April, and it was it started out as a hot day. Of course, it turned chilly in that evening. But uh, so I wasn't dressed, prepared to go and talk to him. <laughs> but it was a sometimes in the industry you have to dress a certain way for certain situations. And another case that I was working on, there was a gentleman that I needed to talk to. And the only way I knew he was going to talk to me is if I showed a little cleavage, for lack of a better way of putting it. And so I dressed that way. Well, if I would have, hindsight, I would have never dressed that way going to talk to Felix in the first place. However, it probably helped. But the problem with that is, usually I will put the recorder that I used, I would put down in my bra, and I didn't have one on that day. And I'm like, ah, crap. You know, what am I going to do? i got to record this. This could be the only conversation I ever have with this man. It has to be recorded. And I'm wearing, and so my next option usually is my boot. Well, I wasn't wearing boots. I was wearing sandals. So it promptly went down into the front of my panties and sat there the whole time while I was walking around with him. Picked it up great. You know, I was, that's the first time I'd ever used that spot to hide my recorder. But it worked. I was a little worried. And I thought, okay, if I sit down, you know, because it's just a little Olympus digital recorder. And I thought, if I sit down, it could very well push a button. I've had that happen before. And it stops it. And it could mess up the recording. You know, there's all kinds of things that could happen. But in that first interaction, I didn't sit down. I didn't have a reason to sit down. So I was uh, (laughs) grateful for that. It goes better than you had expected, better than planned. Now you're back in your car. You're driving away. You probably start to feel some that you're safe again. You can shake off the nervousness. But now it's time to call Jerry, the author of Gone, and let him know that, that you just you just spoke to Felix. And not only that, but Felix went into this personal information. And now Jerry just kind of brushes this off, but you realize the importance of this because Felix has left the door open for another visit. I said, I'm going to try to go back. And he was like, you're crazy. And I was like, yeah, I am. And nice to meet you. You know, I mean, he was new, so he didn't know. And uh, I said, I'm going to try to go back and see what he does another day. So then I go home and your adrenaline is just, you know, when you're, I've never jumped out of an airplane. I never would. I'd rather sit in a shed with a a serial killer than jump out of an airplane. I'll be real honest with you. But those people that jump out of airplanes, you know, that that do that for the adrenaline rush, it's the same type of feeling I can imagine. And but then when when it comes down, you just crash, you know. I slept it off like literally ten hours, and I never sleep that long. And when I got up the next day, I called Jerry, and I was like, "Okay, I've got to figure out a plan." And he said, "How are you going to go back? You you have no reason to go back. What are you going to tell him?" I said, I'm going to tell them that my pictures were shit and I need to take better pictures. You've developed a plan to get back there and talk to Felix again. But now speaking with a suspected multiple murderer once is is nerve wracking. But to go back there a second time is just crazy. You know, I didn't I didn't know what I was going to be up against. So you prepare your body, your physical body, like you're going to be on surveillance for the whole night 
which, you know, you load up on protein, you stop drinking water, you know, so you don't have to go to the bathroom, you know, the whole thing, and which was a good move on my end because he didn't have a bathroom. And uh, I told Jerry, it's about, you know, 2 o'clock in the afternoon or something. I said, okay, I'm going in. I'll just leave me be. I'll talk to you when I'm done. I was in there for six hours talking to him that second time, six hours. It was crazy. So now you're in Felix's rundown house. Uh, it's like a storage shed almost. And Felix, he's elderly at this point, correct? Yeah, he was, I think, 73, 72 at the time. Yeah. But on your first visit, you didn't go into his home. I stepped in about one foot because he asked me to come in so he could put on a different shoes and a jacket. But I didn't get a good look. And it's a storage shed. It's actually a storage shed that he lives in. Like a two-room storage shed. It wasn't very big at all. Probably the whole thing was probably 500 square feet, you know. Guy sounds like he lives like the captain. I tell you, the B.O. factor was on pegged to 10. I mean, the guy had serious B.O. It was horrible. It was gagging. But he's very, he's very neat and clean in a sense. His body was not clean. But his stuff was very well, I mean, almost to the point of OCD, you know, very well organized and clean, and everything had its own little place and compartmentalized. It was very interesting. So not a home at all. This is not a house at all. This is a storage shed. Does he have electricity? Does he have running water? No, he had water and electricity there. So you have like this concrete slab where this old house was. There's nothing there anymore. It's, I don't know, a half an acre. And then right behind it was a storage shed. Well, the storage shed still existed. So he converted that into a glorified bedroom and... There was electricity to the storage shed, but of course there's no running water. So he would just go to the bathroom in the yard. That's easy enough if you're doing a number one, but what about a number two? Pretty sure he would just dig a hole and take a crap in the yard. I'm not I'm not kidding. Um, he, he was like that, you know. And so, but while I was there in that six hours, he offered me wine and I'd take it. I mean, you have to in those situations. And... I didn't want to, but I I did, and and I thought to myself, okay, milk this because a you don't want to obviously get you know drunk or anything, and two you don't want to have to go to the bathroom. And at one point he said, I'm going to step out and go to the bathroom, and I said, okay. And he said, do you need to go? And I was like, no, I'm good. And he said, well, I can help you with that if you need to. And I'm thinking to myself, no, you can't. But thanks for the offer, you know. If I would have had to have gone, I still would have done it anyway. You know, your options are pee your pants or go squat in the yard and have a serial killer watch you pee. Whatever, I'm going to go squat in the yard. Well, you're nervous on that first visit, but during the second visit, I mean, are you scared at all? Because now you're inside the guy's home. I was, I don't know if I would say terrified, but I was, I was anxious and nervous and a little scared because it, the main thing was when you sit in that storage shed, at the time, there was only one way in and one way out, and that was that one door. And he was in between me and that door. And so there are double doors that open, but they were blocked with boxes and crates and things like that. You know, you think that's, of course, it's in my nature when I walk into a building, I always look at the escape route. You know, how, do, how am I going to get out of here the fastest way possible? And so, of course, that's running through my mind the whole time. And then I realized, I mean, he's, he's, back in the day, he could easily kick anybody's ass, I'm sure. He worked out a lot. He, he tries to eat healthy. 
and he was probably pretty strong. However, I probably outweigh him by about 75 pounds. You know, I'm a big girl. So I thought to myself, okay, this guy's 73, and, yeah, he's he still works out, and he's still eating healthy and the whole thing, but I could probably take him enough to get out of the building if I needed to. Yeah, because this guy could just get extremely violent very quickly. I mean, you have to watch his mannerisms, try to pick up on on what he's doing, on his character, what read into him. Is this guy just some rampage, you know, if I said the wrong thing, he's just going to snap and, you know, try to kill me right there, or what's what's the situation? So that's always in the back of your mind. But then about halfway through that first long meeting, that six-hour meeting, um, I just was pissed off, and your demeanor changes a little. Well, what did he do to get you pissed off? You know, I was aggravated because he wasn't saying what I wanted him to say. He was He just kept going on about this minutia, and... But you're when you're undercover, you're in a position to where you can't just be like, hey, dude, shut up and get to the point. You know, you can't do that, and especially with Felix, of all people. You cannot do that because he'll shut down and you're done, and that's it. And I wanted to leave that door wide open because we didn't know how big our window was going to be. What was some characteristics that you were picking up from him? I was just like, this guy is the most narcissistic asshole I've ever met in my entire life. And on top of that, he's used what he perceives as his superior mental state of everybody as the way he views himself to take the lives of these women. And that just, it just pissed me off, you know? So my demeanor changed a bit. I had to keep it intact, but my demeanor changed a bit about halfway through. And then from then forward, it was just like, I'm on a mission and this son of a bitch is going to talk to me whether he wants to or not, you know, type of attitude. Yeah. Because after all of these years, we're talking about, a guy that was married twice. He's intimately involved with another woman. We have this situation where the first wife is found dead and the other two are are just simply missing. You know, he gave me great detail about his relationship with Annette. Uh, Pretty good detail about his relationship with Sharon. He never really talked about Mary at all, Um, just very, very briefly. You know, in this, and all of like ninety percent of all of this information came in that six-hour time time frame, that 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 meeting. But he never would say, uh, "My lover Annette, my wife Annette." He never would say that. He would just say, "This girl, you know, the girl I met." And, I mean, he gave me detail from how they met all the way to just kind of fizzled out. And 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 even though he's talking about his past relationships, he's not telling you what you need to know. What happened to these women? It's point during that conversation i think okay this is my this is where i'm going to get my smoking gun how do i you know ask him questions without grilling him so to speak plus i have to be oblivious to all this information he can't know that i know everything already he's telling me the last thing you can say to a man like this is well what happened to her because that projects a, a an accusatory tone towards him i could say it to you all day long you'd be like well what happened to her was X, Y, Z, not with him. What do you mean what happened to her? Are you saying I did something to her? That's how he would react. And now you're walking a very fine line because you can't ask him specific questions, very direct questions, without him shutting down. You still need information, and all he's willing to say is that these relationships, well, they just fizzled out. I said, well, do you ever see her again? This was the weirdest, this is the single most strangest thing that has ever happened to me in my entire life, ever. Is this moment when I said to him, oh, that's sad. It sounds like you 
really, you know, had a deep love for her. Do you ever see her anymore? And I knew damn good and well he didn't because, you know, he murdered her. There's no doubt in my mind. But his, you know how they talk about, oh, so-and-so's eyes just turned black and their demeanor just changed in an instant and the whole thing? And I always thought to myself, okay, whatever, you know, I'm I'm very skeptical. I don't trust anybody. And I'm just like, whatever, whatever. I saw that happen in that very moment. And that was the only time that I was truly, for lack of a better term, terrified in his presence. Because he was, he was standing up, for whatever reason, I can't remember, and I was sitting down. So I'm immediately more vulnerable in the physical ratio. And... I said, oh, I, I thought to myself, I'm going to provoke him and get him to talk about the end of their relationship. Because like I said, he just kind of fizzles out. Oh, we just went our separate ways. Okay. What a great love story that is. And, you know, the, all the detail I had to hear. Do you ever see her anymore? And his, he turned to me. And mind you, he's like four feet away from me. He turns to me and he steps towards me. When he turned, his eyes were black. And he's got blue eyes. You've seen the pictures. He's got blue eyes. His eyes were black. And he took a step towards me, and he was just, no, no, I don't see her anymore. And he immediately started talking about something else. And it made me nervous to where I was almost physically shaking. I was like, oh, my God, this is this is the part where I die. All right. I don't have time to text. I'm going to die, and here we go. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out BetterHelp.com slash garage today. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. 
IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners, get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com garage. Visit IXL.com garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com garage today. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. We're talking with Gina Frenzel, a private investigator in the state of Texas, who is investigating the suspected serial killer of Felix Vale. And Gina, who do you believe is his suspected victims? Okay, uh, in technical terms, I think his first victim is Mary Horton Vale, which 
would be his first wife. And basically, his story, Felix's story, is that they were out on the boat and he had a stump. They're trot line fishing, you know, at night, like at dusk. And he hits a stump and she falls in the water and he dives down to find her. He can't find her. And, you know, her body's found three days later. But I think what happened based off of, I base this information off of what, what he's told me, what other people have said that, you know, had firsthand information from Felix, and then things that I've seen and read, be it in his journals or, you know, letters that he had kept and, you know, just all the pieces of the puzzle. I think what happened was that they went, he took her out on the boat, made her go out on the boat with him. She didn't, she was terrified of water at night, and, um, took her out there, strangled her, hit her in the head. I think he might have hit her in the head first with one of the oars, put her into the boat, drug her in and put her into the boat, drove out to where he dumped her body, which was a couple miles down the river, put her in the water, and turned around and left. And if you look at the pictures of her body coming out, um, I mean, all of that, there's so much that indicates that you know she's got a head a head wound and her there's oil and stuff on her on on the front part of her body her her panties are actually pulled out of the back of her pants and but to me it just indicates you know I'm I'm moving somebody across and the docks that he the Shell Beach um boat docks where he kept his boat so many it was dark there were no, there was no night light there or anything like this and I've I've talked to several people that grew up in the area and knew the docks well. And, you know, if your boat motor was broken or whatever, you just set them there on the dock and you'd work on it and there was oil and all kinds of things, you know, just on the dock. So it, And it was clear that she had some kind of oily substance all over her the front of her clothes. So also the scarf around her neck. Um Back in the day, of course, the ladies wore the scarf and they would wear it over their hair to keep their hair, you know, from blowing in the wind. But it was shoved three or four inches, four inches down into her throat. So you don't get that from accidentally drowning. But what would be Felix's motivation for killing his wife? She, you know, they just had a baby. He was just a few months old. And she thought she might have been pregnant again. She was not. Turns out she was not. She had uh, female problems that caused some issues that would mimic her being pregnant. And Felix is documented telling someone that he didn't want to have the first kid, much less the second kid. And yeah, I think his words were, I fix that bitch to where she'll never have another kid. You know, that kind of thing. You had mentioned to me that that Felix had some mommy issues. What did you mean about his his family and his mommy issues. He in in my undercover work with him, he claims now keep in mind out of that 6 hours of just dredging on about everything, you know, he's very transcendental meditation type of product of the 60s, you know, just your stereotypical person like that. Well, so out of that six hours, probably four of it is him talking about all this just crap that just 
but you have to endure it. And during the course of that, he's talking about, he claims to have, you know, he he asked me what the earliest memories I have, and, you know, I, I said, I don't know, three or four years old, I can't remember. And He claims to have memories of him in the womb. He says that he remembers as a newborn breastfeeding, and he talks about, he's fascinated with breastfeeding, and even through his journals, it's just weird. And he talks about breastfeeding on his mom and playing with her nipples to the point of stimulating her sexually, and it's just it's just weird. But then you have, of course, there's there's the all the siblings, and he's the second son, or the I'm sorry, he's the first son, and his brother. I can't remember the age difference, but he's got his younger brother, Ronnie, and they're close. You know, they stay close, but apparently Felix was very very close to his mother in a bizarre way, you know, just in a weird way, unnatural. And, of course, he touched on that, you know, with me, what I just explained to you. But then throughout his adult life, you know, it was, I got the impression that his mother was, oh, Felix can do no wrong. You know, Felix is, he will, he is the perfect child. He is whatever he does wrong, mommy's going to cover up for him, too, or turn a blind eye, so to speak. Now, I'm not saying that uh, he she knew that he did something and she hid the truth. I, I, that, I don't think that was the case. I think what it was is she probably thought, okay, he's done something poorly and or, you know, he's done something deceive, deceiving, and so we're just going to act like it didn't happen. And we're not going to bring it up, and we're not going to talk about it. Of course, you have to attribute some of that to the generation, too. But all these years, of course, we didn't learn this until like a year later, but all these years he has all these journals, and the man writes down every freaking thing he's done, everything. I'm not kidding you. He writes down everything. But the journals start January 1st of 1985. You know, Annette disappeared in 1984. So where are the rest of the journals? Well, then later we learned that he kept them in the attic of his mom's house. Well, you can't tell me his mom didn't, obviously she knew he kept things up there. And there was probably a pretty strong chance that she might have read a journal or two throughout the years. Who knows? But he he led such a nomadic lifestyle that his prized possessions that he didn't have with him always stayed at his parents' house. What do you know and think about his second victim? Was was she a wife or a girlfriend? Sharon was his second victim, and she, Sharon Hensley, and she was a girlfriend. She's a long-term girlfriend. But according to Felix, she took off in a boat, sailed away with a couple. At one point in a letter he wrote to her mom, she took off with, John and Vanessa. And then at another point, he wrote in something else to somebody else that he took off with uh, another another name, you know, a couple, but he took off with another name. And nothing is consistent except the fact that she was in a boat and she took off with this couple. He claimed that they both did pornography films. I don't know that he obviously could have performed in that kind of setting. However, I think she probably did. She was a stripper, and 
I think that evolved into maybe one or two uh, pornography films. And I think what happened was sometime, at some point in 1973, they go to the Florida and to do pornography. I mean, he told me that's what they did. They went over there to do that. And I think there was a different man. I think Vanessa is actually Sharon when he refers to Vanessa in these letters. I think Vanessa is actually Sharon. And this guy, John, I think is probably somebody that she either was in the pornography industry with or met somewhere along the way in uh, in relation to that. And I think his jealousy took over. Because Mary, obviously he offed her because he didn't, he didn't want the kid responsibility, and there was a life insurance policy that he was able to collect on, partially collect on. With Sharon, there was no fiduciary gain for her her to be dead. And Felix is very possessive and very jealous and very controlling. I think what happened was John, whoever this John guy is, and Vanessa being Sharon, started an intimate relationship. And it was probably okay at the beginning, but then he gets extremely jealous and you're not going to be, if you're not going to be with me, then you're not going to be with anybody. I think he rented a boat. I think he drove off the coast of the Keys and killed them both, dumped them in the ocean and came back. That's what I think honestly happened to her. Um, her body will never, ever, ever be found. I think she, and I think there is potentially a male victim associated with her. So Felix's first wife is found dead. He claims she drowned in the river. and But her body's found three days later, and it's obvious that it's sus- suspicious circumstances. Then he has this other relationship with a girlfriend, and the mother is looking for the girlfriend because she disappears. He claims that she took off with another couple. They left out in the middle of the ocean. But Felix doesn't stop with the relationship's there, does he? He 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 has another suspected victim. Yes. His third victim was a wife, Annette Cravervale. She was fifteen when they met. And they they dated and traveled around. They met at a garage sale in Houston, Texas of all places. They date for a while. He convinces Mary to sign off paperwork so she can marry him claiming that we're driving we're traveling around and I and and I think Annette even said in a letter to her mom at one stage you know if we have to get married because he's traveling with a minor and we love each other just let us get married and and Mary Annette's mother says at that point she said you know if I don't allow her to get married then I'm probably never going to see her again it was it, it got to one of those situation. So she said, okay, y'all get married. They get married. Felix Felix is a pedophile, plain and simple. I have zero doubt based off of all the information that I have gathered during the course of my investigation. Felix is a pedophile. So that partially to me in my mind explains why he would be attracted to a 15-year-old girl anyway. She was not, you know, today you look at 15-year-old girls and you're like, what are they, what are they putting in their milk? You know, they're developed and they're like, they got the ass and the boobs and you're, you're thinking, you're not 15. Annette was not like that. She was very thin frame. She did not have big breasts, you know. Um, almost a boyish type of figure. 
And I think Felix preferred little boys over little girls in his pedophilia. Well, so to me, in my mind, that explains, partially explains the attraction to Annette. But from the very beginning, he knew about Annette getting an inheritance when she was 18. Um, Her father was killed in a car crash in Mexico, and she was his only child. And her mom and dad were divorced, but he had a life insurance policy that paid to Annette that she would get when she was 18. And, again, Felix... Felix never really held down a job, hardly ever. So with the first with his first wife, we see the motive of not wanting to have the child, but there's also the financial gain of the insurance policy, collecting a portion of that. We later learn that that money that he received, he used zero dollars of that to pay for his own wife's funeral. He didn't pay for her funeral at all. Now we have this situation where he puts himself in a relationship with a young girl that he believes is going to receive money when she turns 18. And so he can he can foresee the financial gain here. Annette, all, always financial gain. He knew from the very beginning she was going to get this money. And then he just planned his course. You know, he never gave up. They, they met each other. They separated. You know, she was in Oklahoma. He goes back. He goes to Oklahoma to find her. Her mom says, no, she's not there. He tracked her down. She was over in Bernie, of all places, which is between here and Canyon Lake, between where I am and Canyon Lake, the little community. And she was at this private school there. He tracks her down. He was after her her money the entire time. And when she disappeared, I think there was about forty or $50,000 that was unaccounted for. And there's no doubt it ended up in his pocket. So... They get married, they travel around, and when she turns, I mean, it's just like clockwork. When she turns 18, they convince her mom. Her mom had bought this house with a back apartment, a garage apartment, so that they could fix it up and have income, a residual income while they were living up in Oklahoma. Well, he convinces Annette to convince her mom to sign the house completely over to Annette. And her mom did. Her mom, Mary, said that it it was all but a threat. It was basically turn it over or else type of thing. And she was very intimidated by the whole situation. And it all was coming from Felix. So she does. She signs it over to Annette because the money, if I understand right, the, the money, some of the money used to buy the house was from Annette's inheritance from her dad's life insurance policy. And... So that was the idea was Mary said, look, you know, she's young, she's she's very artistic, uh, you know, the whole starving artist mentality. I want to set her up in a situation to where she can have some residual income and still be free to explore her artistic side and not have to worry about, you know, financial issues. So it was a smart move in the uh, onset. So she... She signs it over to Annette, and then just within two or three months later, Annette signs it over completely, 100% to Felix. And then two months later, Annette disappears. So, yeah, I mean, come on. Yeah, where is she? What is his explanation for where she's gone? 
What does what is his story? And his story is so un- inconsistent, like completely inconsistent with her. He said that she took off on a Greyhound bus in St. Louis, dropped her off there so she could go pursue this boyfriend in Mexico. And then then another story was that he put. They were in St. Louis camping. They were on this you know road trip camping, and uh, she met two people at the bus station. And she decided she just wanted to take off with them. She didn't want to be married to him anymore. And he's like, fine, here you go. Here's your here's your money and your, your stuff. You hit the road. Um, he claims that she signed the house over to him as a love offering. What was his words? For being um, a father figure and a lover and a teacher. You know, just very, everything was very much, I'm so great. She loved me so much because I'm so awesome. She gave me this house, you know, that kind of mentality. And then he was, I. so those are his stories on her, that she, she just took off and, and they made the agreement. And that was one of the things he told me, but he said it numerous times over the years, that they agreed to see where each other were 10 years later and meet up and say, hey, and have a cup of coffee type of deal. Well, that's what prompted me in, in my meetings with him was to say, oh, have you all seen each other, you know? And that's when he, you know, of course, turned black. What do you think the real story is? In reality, the day or the week that he said she took off on the bus, and that was the last time anybody saw her, two weeks later, approximately two weeks later, they, they being Felix and Annette, were down in Louisiana, in Sulphur, Louisiana, or Lake Charles area, at the county fair with his family. And they testified to that. And... So, of course, that story doesn't hold water. Then what happened? Oh, I don't know. I just have my dates wrong. Well, what happened was they go down there to stay with his family, and they go down there to stay with his family and go to this county fair and the whole thing. And then they say, hey, we're going to take off and go camping for a day or two. And he's they're gone for three days, and he comes back by himself. And his niece, I think it's his niece, one of the family members said that he was acting weird and he was eating meat, and Felix was not a big meat eater. Now, not to say he was 100%, I never eat meat. No, he would eat meat. But he wasn't like, you know, give me a steak every day, I'm a happy girl. That's not how he was. He would selectively eat meat very, very few times in his life, okay? They said that he came back and he was acting strange and he was eating meat and just, Bizarre, just bizarre. I think what happened was, yeah, they went camping. I think, you know, she was already 18. It was time for him to move on. He was tired of her. He tired of her. And he killed her. And as morbid as this sound, my gut tells me, I can't explain it. I have no proof of this whatsoever. My gut tells me he chopped her up. He threw her in a bayou somewhere where he knew there were alligators. He knew the area very well. He lived there when he was married to Mary, his first wife. And her body will never be found again. I think that's what happened to Mary. I mean, Annette. I think that's what happened to Annette. So what happens when he comes back? He comes back, and a few weeks later, Annette's mother, Mary, hey, where's Annette? Where's Annette? Where's Annette? And he's, oh, she, he starts spinning off the story that she took off on the bus. And that's when she immediately missing person and reporting to the police and what he's saying is not right. Mary never 
Mary Craver never never once thought her daughter took off from the very beginning, like within weeks of her disappearance. He, she always said, Felix killed her and disposed of her, and I know he did, and he's lying about it, and she's always been just diligent about, you know, never giving up. And, and of course, that's what brought uh, – it took 50 years, but it got us to this stage now. But there were some signs, you know, there were some red flags that went up, things that her mother had seen regarding the turmoil in their relationship. Annette, during the time they were married, Felix choked her and beat her up, and she left him, and she comes back to live with her mom. And she had gotten pregnant, and he made her have an abortion. He didn't want kids. And then she, he, he beat her up, chokes her, you know, not choked her out, obviously. They, they had a fight. She comes back and stays with her mom in Oklahoma, and then he comes up there to come get her, and she reluctantly goes back with him. Uh, I think her term was Felix was the smartest man I've ever known, and, you know, it's the love of all loves, you know, that kind of thing. So that being said, um, there was there was um, the domestic violence in that relationship. And after the fact, it wasn't until probably a year, maybe two years later, later after his arrest, after Felix's arrest, that we found women, in fact, right up until the trial, we were getting tips and we talked to all these people. We found several women that, that same thing, he beat me up, he slapped me. One woman said she, he was choking her in the shower and her brother came in and saved her, you know. Um, and this was all from, from the disappearance of, no, it was right. It, it went anywhere from 1968 all the way up to like 1980, you know, in the, that time frame, and a lot of it in California. But, but the the interesting thing about it is, fast forward to the house in Oklahoma that he has owned up until 2013, literally has owned all these years and used it as a rental, and there's this nice couple living there, a young couple, and. All of a sudden, there's this room up in the attic, and it's always locked, padlocked. And it's Felix's room. I'm the landlord. That's where I keep my tools and whatever. Just don't mess with my stuff. But this couple um, had a free range of everything else. Well, they decide they're going to buy the house from him. And this is interesting enough. This is all taking place. It's all coming out. At the same time, I'm undercover with him before he gets arrested. It's all happening at the same time. And, of course, I was unaware of it at the time, but when you look back at the timeline, you see it. So Felix wants to own or finance this house for this couple, but what's in the room? What's in the secret Felix room? And he said, hey, I'm going to come up and I'm going to clean out that room, and then, you know, I'll unlock it and the house is yours. So all the paperwork's done. Everything's done. He goes up. He gets his stuff. He leaves. And a few weeks later, the new owners of this house say, hey, we're going to go up in that room and clean out because he left some stuff behind. Back in an old suitcase, like from the 70s, I mean, it's an old, old, soft-sized suitcase, shoved up inside the suitcase is a is a bag, and inside that bag is Annette's uh, clothing. It's her belongings, and it's all shoved in the suitcase and all shoved way back up and, like, tucked in the corner of the eave of the house. And they find it, and they immediately call the police on it and for the police to come and get it. Well, at this point, I, I 
can't remember if he'd been arrested yet or not, but they had heard the story about him, and they're like, whoa, this is weird. Then when they see this, an immediate red flag, and the police come and get it. Well, what is in this bag? I'll tell you, it's it's a weekend bag. First and foremost, the most red flag of the whole bag is her birth control. Her birth control is in the bag, okay? I don't care who you are. If you're taking off, if you're whatever stage of life you're in as a woman, if you are on birth control because you're not going to have a kid and you're taking off, you might leave your shoes behind. You're taking your birth control. I'm going to tell you that right now. So her birth control's in there. And there were three different forms of birth control, okay? There was a pill, a sponge, and a spermicide. This girl was serious about not getting pregnant. And from what I understand, the abortion, rightfully so, was probably one of the most horrible experiences, you know, at that stage in her life. So she didn't want to go through that again, and she knew Felix didn't want kids, so she wasn't going to take the chance of getting pregnant. So it's birth control, a swimming suit, a change of clothing, and like a hat, a pair of sandals, I think. I'm not sure, some undergarments. But if I look at it as a female and I'm looking at that bag, I say that is a weekend bag. So my assumption on that is that that was the bag that she had while they were down in Louisiana during the last time she was seen. And he gets back home after he kills her, gets rid of her body, goes back to his family's home, stays there a night or two, then goes back home to Oklahoma cleaning out the car, and he's like, oh, shit, I got her bag. I'm going to shove it up here in the corner, and I'll take care of it later. And he never did. And he to- Literally, he totally forgot about it because when he went up there, he kept it padlocked this all these years. So when 30 years, 40 years, when he goes up there to get his stuff for the final time to turn the house completely over to the new owners, he forgets about that bag, and they find it. All right. Did you guys miss me? Did you miss me? I'm still here. I'm still here. A lot of information there, Captain. A lot of stuff covered mm-hmm. regarding this Felix character and his past relationships. And and talk about a creep factor. I mean, to be stuck in a shack with this guy that you believe has killed multiple women and he's he's the thing between you and freedom, the door. Mm-hmm. And she feels, Gina feels like he wants some kind of friendship or relationship with her. And that's why he's allowed her in his home, allowed her himself to open up and speak with her and talk with her about his past. Mm-hmm. And yet she, she would fall right into his victimology at that sense. And if he right. were to slip or say the wrong thing, or if she were to act out of turn and ask the wrong question, right? well, it could be lights out for Gina. Yeah. Like you said, either, or, I mean, he could say something that he didn't want to say. And now uh, she has to die because of that. Mm-hmm. All right. A lot more to dive into in part two of a dark past. And for everything True Crime Garage, make sure you go to the website, truecrimegarage.com. Don't forget, we have our pint glasses on there. We have t-shirts available, old episodes, bonus episodes available. Check those out as well. I guess uh, we'll see you tomorrow. Yeah, that's it for today. We'll see you back in the garage tomorrow. Until then, be good, be kind, and don't litter.
Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes.